Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What up, guys? This is Henry Zamoda, Danny Abeljavar. Welcome to another episode of Bro History. Um, so first and foremost, I um, want to make a quick announcement. The This will be the last episode of the year. So the reason being is because we need to focus on making content for 2023, and we need time to do that. And we also want to spend time with our families during Christmas and the holiday season and New Year's. So this is going to be the last episode. Sorry for the the, the two-week cadence here. We're trying to solve that issue by, by uh, you know, getting content ready. But this is the fifth and final episode. I think it's number five, right? Did we do four or five? I'm losing count. Something like that. Jesus Christ. I can't even keep count. So what? number Episode number one was the Alliance System. Episode number two was the, the naval race. Three was politics in Serbia. And four was the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand. So five, this is the aftermath. So this is the period of time between Archduke Ferdinand getting murdered and uh, the war going global. So that is the, the purpose of this episode uh, in our Causes of World War I series so um, if you listen to all of them, congratulations. We are at the end. If this is the first time you've been listening to this, um, I think you'll actually be able to listen to this one more so than the others by itself, but still encourage you to listen to those as well uh, because this is we're picking up essentially where like your, your history books pick up. But there's about 10 hours of context that, that are leading up to this episode, so you may want to get that. So I'm going to start this show by giving a quick summary of the last couple of episodes we started the series with the creation of, uh, of, a, of a united Germany that immediately became the greatest industrial power in Europe, which throws the current balance of power in Europe for a loop. However, despite being a major economic and military power, this German state still has some major problems. First and foremost, in the process of creating this German empire or this, this German nation state, they annexed territory from France, Alsace-Lorraine, during the, the Franco-Prussian War, which causes the French government to be swept up in revanchism against Germany. They were very bitter about losing this important industrial area. And uh, you know the political rhetoric in France throughout the 1800s and early 19th century is very anti-German. Um, you know, politicians really couldn't even... Uh, you know, have any real power without having kind of a hostile stance against Germany. They wanted their territory back. Um, also, Germany was scary to them because they had a larger population and a way higher industrial output. output. 
they were like the old money replacing the new money, or excuse me, the new money replacing the old money is uh, is, a, is a way that a lot of uh, historians may crudely put it sometimes, but it's a rivalry dynamic that grows. Now, the other big problem for for Germany was that it was surrounded. Germany is kind of a crappy place to put a nation state. And I think we've talked about this in our previous episodes. You're putting it sandwiched between two or three empires. You're putting it between France, Russia, and the Habsburg Empire. You have France on the west, you have Austria-Hungary uh, on the south, and you have Russia on the east. So the German policy in the Bismarck era was to isolate France by keep by keeping Russia and Austria on the same page. The big fear was one of them would ally with France and Germany would be completely surrounded by enemies. So to make a long story short, Russia and Austria have conflicting policies in the Balkans, which put them at odds with each other um, as they're both trying to fill this vacuum of power that was created uh, or that was caused by the decline of the Ottoman Empire. Bismarck is, is, is the person who's kind of handling this alliance system. When he's sacked and, you know, eventually dies soon after, Germany kind of overtly or, you know, clearly kind of sends a message that they're tilting more in an Austrian dire- direction, which eventually causes Russia to ally with France. So the big fear happened. At the same time, Germany gets into a naval arms race with Britain. Since, you know, Germany was such a strong continental power, it were, there was a popular uh, way of thinking in like the German elite circles that dramatic culture and language should be spread throughout the entire world. You know, you see France and you see the British, they have these, these uh, vast empires overseas, they have this world influence. You know, we're the, the mega power in Europe, why aren't we the ones who are, you know, kind of holding the world together and uh, spreading our own language and culture around the world? This, uh, you know, leads to a naval arms race with the British. And this is what we get. We have we get this bipolar system where the British tilt and they make friends with their old imperial rivals. You know, most of British foreign policy was anti-Russian throughout the 1800s. They tilt to be more uh, not necessarily pro-Russia, but more pro-France, who was allied with Russia and there you have it. You have this system that becomes bipolar, went from multipolar to bipolar. And the quote that I'll use from Christopher Clark's book, which we used in other ones, but I think it kind of sums up the dynamic so perfectly. If you compare a diagram of the alliances among the European great powers in 1887 with a similar map for the year 1907, you see the outlines of transformation. The first diagram reveals a multipolar system in which a plurality of forces and interests balance each other in precarious equilibrium. Move forward 20 years to a diagram of the European alliances in 1907, and the picture has changed utterly. You see a bipolar Europe or organized around two alliance systems. The polarization of Europe's geopolitical system was a crucial precondition for the war that broke out in 1914. It is almost impossible to see how a crisis in Austro-Serbian relations, however grave, could have dragged the Europe of 1887 into a continental war. 
the bifurcation into two alliance blocks did not cause the war. Indeed, it did as much to mute as to escalate conflicts in pre-war years. Yet without two blocks, the war could not have broken out in the way that it did. The bipolar system structured the environment in which the crucial decisions were made. The major theme that we've been talking about in some of the previous episodes is a transformation from a unipolar world, not excuse me, from a multipolar world to a bipolar world rather than, you know, I think a lot of people in the current context when they're trying to really, uh, you know, defend the concept of the unipolar world, meaning the unipolar world where there's one mega nation state or hyper power that kind of controls everything, basically the way the United States is, and how a lot of neoconservatives think. Um, they'll look back in World War I. Well, when you have a multipolar system, when you have this type of system, everyone just goes to hell and fights and, 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 and goes to war with each other. So you need this mega power to bring peace, to be the kind of that policeman and that watchdog who uh, enforces contracts, who enforces uh, obligations. Um, so that's, you know, an argument. And I guess, you know, you can even make the argument that every multipolar world, war, uh, world will eventually become a bipolar world. Um, I mean, those are arguments that in, in, in theories that, you know, you can you can take from what you want and, and agree with what you want. But those are just kind of concepts in foreign policy. Now, back to World War One, and we spent a lot of time talking about the, the 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 crisis in the Balkans. We probably spent the majority of this series talking about the politics in Serbia, the politics in Austria-Hungary, um, the Serbian threat, the fanning of Pan-Slavism in the Balkans, and you know how there there is these overwhelming nationalist societies that you know they were they were expansionist really. The murder of Archduke Ferdinand and. Uh, his wife, Sophie, on June 28th, it finally sets the pretext for Austria-Hungary to finally deal with this Serbian threat with, a, with an actual military intervention. It was basically a 9-11 type event. It completely changed the chemistry in Austria. And the war power was able to, the, the war parties were, were really able to take over. Mind you, every single country in Europe had a very powerful war party. Like every single one from Britain to Germany to Russia to Italy to Austria. They all had very powerful and influential with key leadership war parties that were, that were pushing for, for some type of conflict for their own reasons. So this 9-11 type event, that's kind of one of... Uh, Christopher Clark's uh, thesis is in, in his book is that he calls it a 9-11 type event, the, the, the murder of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. It creates that war, that pretext for the Hawks to say, we knew it. We should have been, we should have dealt with this a long time ago. It's time to go in now, go in hard and, you know, launch these Serbian nationalists to the sun. That was the mentality. And which was interesting as well, because Archduke Franz Ferdinand, he wasn't really necessarily super anti-Slavic. He actually was one of the guys who wanted to bring a, 
a triarchy where they would have a you know a third royal uh, elite with the southern Slavs. But in order to do that, they had to be you know even-handed with the Serbians and the South Slavics in uh, the borders of Austria-Hungary. But you know the Serbians found that as a threat as well. But don't want to get too bogged down in that. You can listen to that episode if you want to learn more about that piece. Uh, the point is, this sets the pretext. And one of the main reasons that Franz Ferdinand was actually in Bosnia in the first place, which is kind of overlooked, is that he was actually a, a troop inspector. So there was plans for the Austrians to invade Serbia prior to uh, Franz Ferdinand even being assassinated. He was he was there inspecting you know soldiers uh, who they had they weren't fully mobilized on the borders ready to attack, but they were definitely maneuvering uh, within the borders of Bosnia, getting ready uh, for that that outcome that they really thought was was likely. The Austrians were very aware of the Black Hand organization. Um, there's lots of documentation where you're, where there's, uh, you know, Austrian diplomats, uh, talking about these kind of weird, uh, intelligence apparatuses in Serbia that are basically, uh, part of the, Ser- the Serbian security apparatus in a modern day context, the, the black hand organization reminds me a lot of, um, the right sector, uh, in Ukraine. There's a lot of comparisons where, you know, they're hyper-nationalist and they're kind of um, in the state security apparatus. So the Austrians knew this. They they had people on the ground. You know, they knew that uh, Gavrilo Princip, the, you know, the murderer, one of the cons- uh, conspirators or regiciders, the guy who actually pulled off the, the assassination, they knew that he was sponsored by this organization, which may as well just made him an active agent of the Serbian government. Even though this was a, you know, a covert action, you know, there still was this, this layer, this layer of, uh, you know, plausible deniability. But the question really is, is how much did the leadership of the Serbian government know about this plot? The problem is with that question is that we don't really know. Like, unfortunately, the, the Black Hand organization they were, uh, you know, they they basically destroyed most of their records. So we don't know how close they were, but I, I think you can speculate that they they there was a, a pretty strong relationship between the state. It's not necessarily where you have like you know the prime minister of Serbia directing them to do that, but a lot of times these 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 secret institutions they take on a life of their own. So. Um, you know, that was just that was enough t- for the Austrians to to blame, you know, the entire Serbian state. Now, before they decided on a military intervention, they obviously had to go to their allies. And, you know, their big brother at the time is is Germany. So they sent their ambassadors to Berlin to make sure that they had essentially their unconditional support if they were to go to war. And um, you know what What's interesting about this period, you know, this is known as the July crisis, the the period between, you know, right after Archduke Ferdinand is murdered and then the period where, um, you know, the war is actually declared. Um, the fact that there is kind of like these diplomatic channels going on 
um, the fact that, um, you know, the process is delayed is what a lot of historians will say caused the situation to get so bad. It made the crisis uh, fester and it gave these states time to do more stupid things, really. Um, it gave the warring, gave time for these states to, to really mobilize and, and kind of pull the, the trigger. You know, there, there's some who will say, hey, if Austria-Hungary went into Serbia right away and there was a quick defeat, then there would have been, there would have been no global war. Because the Austrians themselves, there's no evidence to, to suggest the Austrians wanted to get into some large-scale European war. The only thing that they were really concerned. Well, and it's it's funny that you, that you make that argument because uh, it's, we'll talk in a bit about the Schlieffen plan, but you know the the, the German plans to quickly invade France later. Uh, some historians and like alt historians uh, argue that they should have let it. Uh, they shouldn't have mobilized so quickly, and they should have just let it chill out and let some diplomatic stuff happen first, so that they can prepare better. Which is interesting. You know, there's arguments on both sides. It's like people arguing that you had to go in fast and hit them hard and then we'd avoid World War One, Or no, yet you needed to let it simmer for a little while longer and get better prepared so that you can avoid a, a, a larger protracted war. It's really funny how that works out. And, and that's just kind of like the fun part of, of doing topics like these because you, you come up and find all of these interesting you know, alt history theories of like, well, what if this happened? And what if that happened? And, you know, the truth is that we'll never really know, but it's fun to think about anyway. Yeah. And there's so much information to really pull from that, you know, the problem with this topic is that there's too much information. Like yeah. there's, you know, <laughs> if, if you're doing something on the uh, 30 year war, mm -hmm. you're just like, okay, like I can just kind of read I can I mean, read Wikipedia, honestly, right. and I'll probably get the most accurate story that I can maybe possibly get unless I'm like an actual geologist or something who's right. like looking at bullets on the ground floor of the of the battlefields. But, you know, like there's not as many sources, so you're kind of forced to just take the, the, the narrative. Um, you know, a lot of those sources in, that, in the 30-year war would be in German anyway. Now, um, here there's just like there's – thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of documents um you know after the war you know there was basically like you know a giant tribunal on the on the public stage for who was guilty and obviously german germany is the one that's declared guilty i mean they released something like a 40,000 page um document or whatever you know their evidence that why they weren't support why they weren't to blame and how it was actually um you know, France and Russia, who were the main instigators of the war. But um, nevertheless, Germany is blamed for the war. Uh, but we'll get down to that. We'll get to that later. Um, where was I? Talking about Germany supporting Austria. Okay. Yeah. So Germany supporting Austria. So where I left off was, yeah, the crisis made a time to fester. Um so, um, yeah, there's like a series of letters and exchanges and by, you know, German and Austrian diplomats. And, and I'm not going to pretend to be an expert 
about all the different meetings and all the different documents and exchanges that took place between Germany and Austria, uh, you know, over this five day period. Uh, but I do know that by July 5th, um, historians call this the blank check. So the Germans pledged their unconditional assistance to support the Austrians. They basically told them, go deal with them. You know, this is time to just act now, do it. Just just do it, get it done, get in and out, and uh, just, you know. Let us know if you, you need got, something. <laughs> yeah. yeah, let us know if you need something. We got your back. You know, we, we, we get it, so so go for it. Now, here's the problem. This is where, this is the mechanism that starts. So, you know, you, you got your Archduke, she's assassinated. The Austrians, you know, they wanted to deal with this Serbian problem for a while. You know, they hated the Serbs. The Serbs hated them. And they just, you know, the writing was on the wall. They were going to come to blow with them. The problem was that the Serbs' big brother was the Russians. And any Austrian military action was going, was most likely, it wasn't certain, but it was most likely going to trigger a Russian military mobilization. And a Russian military mobilization would 100% trigger a German military response. At this point, Germany's big fear was Russia. Like that was their future forecast. Their risk forecast was we're all good and, and stuff, but eventually, you know, Russia is going to become this major monster imperial or, or industrial power that will rival us because their population is about 140 million people. We have 60 million people. I might be getting those population numbers incorrect, but the point is the Russian population was massive. Um, they weren't the industrial power that Germany was, but they had, they, they potentially could. And of course they were building things like railroads in the Western, in, um, in, uh, you know, the, in, in Western Russia, um, you know, the Russian part, the Russia that's part of Europe. So they were, you know, that was like a future threat to them. Um, so any type of Russian mobilization was going to trigger that. They had almost gone to war uh, in the past where, you know, the German military staff had, you know, tried to convince, um, you know, the Kaiser to, to, to take military action against Russia in multiple occasions, uh, you know, throughout the late 1800s. So this was something that was on their mind. The Germans felt, and this was probably the correct assumption, if a general war broke out due to the Balkans crisis, the timing actually had kind of worked out for them. They felt that the German army and the Navy was at its peak strength. Meanwhile, they believed that France and Russia were not really ready for war yet. And they did not think at all that the British would intervene. Um, you know, there's a quote, and I think this is from, I forget which Russian, uh, which uh, German general said this, but it was, it was along the lines of, what if the British get involved? And, well, if the British get involved... I'll arrest them. We won't even have to send the army. We'll just send our police to arrest your soldiers. Um, so they they just thought it was an afterthought. You know, Britain's uh, Britain has is is a naval power. They're not a continental uh, massive army like you know like the like the Germans are. So there was a feeling in Germany that if Vienna didn't take action immediately against the Serbs. The crisis would would fester on, and 
eventually they would get pulled into some sort of conflict later on when the balance of military power was going to be less favorable for them. Therefore, Germany assured their, um, you know, their complete support for Austria. They urged them to take action ASAP. And, um, you know, they, they encouraged them to do that, even if it were to pull Russia into this conflict. What's, what's funny is that it took longer for the Austrian government to uh, persuade the Hungarian ministers of the need for military intervention in Serbia than it did it to uh, persuade the Germans. So, you know, they're the actual, uh, you know, people who share the state with them. But um, you know, the, the, I think the Hungarians were more so concerned that if they went ahead and conquered Serbia, then there would be a lot more Serbs in the Habsburg Empire. And that they definitely didn't want to tip the balance of power within the Habsburg Empire to like a third, you know, South Slav uh, part of the realm. But, you know, there's also a lot of conflicting messages as well, um, as, you know, there's a lot of documents that, you know, kind of show a, a much more complex narrative. And, and I'm sure the narrative is, is, is a lot more complex than even how we're portraying it right now, um, as in the Germans are just pushing them Um Ralph uh, Rako, I'm going to read a quote from him. Scholars have now available to them the diary of Kurt Reisler, private secretary to German Chancellor Bethlehem Holwig. From this and other documents, it becomes clear that Bethlehem Holwig's position in, Ju in the July crisis was a complex one. If Austria were to vanish as a power, Germany would be threatened to by rampant pan-Slavism supported by growing Russian power in the East and by French rev revanchism in the West. By prompting the Austrians to attack Serbia immediately, he hoped that the conflict would be localized and the Serbian menace nullified. The Chancellor, too, understood that the Central Powers were risking a continental war, but he believed that if Austria acted swiftly presenting Europe with a rapid fate accompli, the war could be confined to the Balkans and the intervention of a third party avoided as much as possible. In this way, the German-Austrian alliance could emerge with a stunning political victory that might split the Entente and crack Germany's encirclement. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, you know, I, it it just highlights, in my opinion, the, the the going narrative that you know they they wanted Germany. That is, they wanted to get it done faster because protracting it any longer would potentially create a. a an imbalance of power, you know, a rallying of a bunch of the other empires that they happen to be surrounded by, you know, to your point earlier, um, you know, they're kind of in a shitty spot in, in Europe. They were just like, let's just get it over with now, rip off the bandaid while we think we're strong. Um, kind of a miscalculation on a whole lot of fronts, but I mean, you know, history and, and, you know, the past being, Hindsight being twenty twenty, it's it's easy for us to sit here and judge them on that decision. But I guess you know, trying to put myself in their shoes, I probably think the same. Another thing, another thing is that, and they they knew this as well, is that there was rampant germophobia, germophobia, <laughs> like scared of germs, germophobia, <laughs> germanophobia. There's rampant germanophobia in um, a lot of governments. Um, probably less so on the Russian side, more so on the French and British side, um, even on the American side as well. 
Austria, they give Serbs an ultimatum. They draw up a list of 10 demands to which the Serbian government would have to capitulate to. Um, you know, some argue that the list of demands was so uh, strict that, you know, they could they knew they wouldn't be able to accept them. And these demands included things like the suppression of anti-Austrian propaganda, the dissolution of the Serbian Nationalist Association, uh, the Black Hand, the purging of officials and army officers guilty of spreading malicious propaganda against Austria, and then the tightening up of controls on the Serb Austro-Hungarian frontiers and the participation of Habsburg officials in a Serbian inquiry into the circumstances surrounding the atrocity. So, the text of the ultimatum was agreed on July 19th, but wasn't presented to the Serbian government until July 23rd. So that's four weeks after the assassination had already taken place. They're really dragging their feet about it. So huh? this guy's <laughs> dead and buried. Yeah. For a while, for, you know, three weeks at this point. Part of the reason for this delay, there was a long planned state visit to St. Petersburg by mm -hmm. uh, the French leadership at the time. Right. And it was scheduled to take place between July 20th to the 23rd. And they didn't want to give, uh, you know, the heads up of the, you know, they didn't want to give a chance for the heads of the Russian and French government to uh, cooperate and collaborate in person. So they wanted to wait until the meeting concluded before, before uh, you know, moving forward to something. And when the Austrians finally give the Serbs their demands... They only give them 48 hours to respond. The, um, the, 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 the British uh, Foreign Secretary, uh, Secretary uh, Sir Edward Gray, you know, he describes the, the Austrian ultimatum as uh, the most formidable document I'd ever seen addressed by one state to another. Formidable it's, document? Uh, <laughs> the most formidable document. It's, you know, legend goes... Is that uh, is the best document when when it's, when, it's when Gray document. the best document um, when Gray was actually reading it? The British government was like, "Oh shit, this is going to happen, isn't it?" <laughs> that was that was sort of the reaction. They're like, "Oh, because I think the first couple of weeks the British were like, I think this will this is going to blow, blow over,', over. Mm -hmm. and then and then they were like, "Oh no, this is going to happen, isn't it?" And then we're going to be pulled into it. Um. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So the Russians asked the Austrians to extend the amount of time they had to reply to their demands. Meanwhile, they told the Serbian government to just comply with the Austrians. So they were just like, hey, listen, we're going to have to handle this. Just don't do anything stupid. Don't you know, act like heroes right now. If Even if the Austrians invade, don't resist. Just let this be handled by, you know, the great powers of Europe. Let's handle it diplomatically. Um, just sit down a hold tight for, for, for now. I think the Austrian government thought that the Russians would be more uh, uh, kind of grossed out by the murder of the Archduke Ferdinand. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, you know, they, they would be like, all right, you're, you're right to go ahead. And, and but maybe they, they guess they calculated wrong. Meanwhile, um, you know, the rest of Europe was, was still waiting on this on this, you know, Serbian response. You know, what are they going to do? Are they going to listen to the ultimatum or not? So um, just before this is 6 p.m. on July 25th, the Serbians submit their response and the Serbian government was prepared to capitulate to nine of the Austrian demands. So nine out of nine out of 10 demands they were going to capitulate to. But they objected to one, and that was the the participation of uh, you know Austrian officials in the murder investigation of Archduke Ferdinand. That's like the one one that they probably wanted the most. Like they probably could have just said yeah to that and no to everything else, and Austria probably would have taken it. Why didn't they just? Why didn't they just let them do that? I don't know. It's probably because they would have figured out that. <laughs> That the government was sponsoring them. <laughs> I mean, I I can only speculate, but I'm I'm speculating. I don't know the full story about why they did this, but I'm speculating that the 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 Serb, uh, you know, the Black Hand group was Hand group was was uh, deeper in with the state than than um, the Austrians probably even knew at the time. Like, I think they're like, oh. Fuck, like a lot of us are going to be arrested. Like, because think about it, they're going to come in. Anyone who's involved in um, a regicide, in the murder of, of, a, of an archduke, anyone is probably going to be killed. It's going to be put in firing squad and executed. So, of course, you know, they're going to be trialed. So, it's going to be impacting, like, you know, probably a lot of people. You know, it could have been just, you got to think about how wild these types of trials will, will go as well. If they yeah, come in but there, I mean, I was just saying, I mean, like we were just talking earlier about how good the Black Hand was at covering their tracks, you know, and and even just like talking about uh, the actual murder of Archduke Ferdinand was really hard because one of the points that we brought up in that episode was that a, a lot of the story that led up to it was not really talked about until was not really talked about until well after the war had had ended and 
you know, there wasn't a whole lot of documentation or paperwork or paper trails around this. So, you know, even though it's widely accepted that the Serbians were, were you know, supporting the Black Hand and and the, you know, Bosnian um, Serbian, like, you know, uh, uh, terrorists in that respect, I think everyone agrees on that. It, it was always very difficult to pin them down with absolute certainty. So, you know, it makes me think, this is why I had such a visceral reaction to them not agreeing to that one term out of all 10 of those terms is that I feel like, and again, hindsight is twenty twenty, but I feel like the Serbians could have just been like, all right, fine, you guys can do an investigation and either just obstruct the investigation slyly enough or that, you know, it, it makes me double think the, the black hand secrecy because like, you know. Up until this point, we're kind of going on the operating assumption that they're actually pretty sneaky, but they're, you know. I mean, they're an open secret that doesn't leave a, you know, a trail, a paper trail behind them, but they're still known. They're still a known group. Like the Austrian, we were talking about this, uh, you know, a couple episodes ago where the Austrians had known about them already. Like they had already mm-hmm. had their diplomats talking about them saying, Hey, like there's this real crazy group there that we pretty sure it's connected to the state. And, um, you know, they're they're funding a lot of these these wars in, um, you know, throughout the Balkans right now. They're they're training and arming uh, Serb nationalists. So right. they, they had known that much. So imagine some, you know, some Habsburg official coming into Serbia, very nationalist society, and then like, you know, pushing them around and like, oh, right, we're going to investigate you. And, you know, what do you think those interrogations would look like? They beat the crap out of them until they confess or something or give somebody up or flip on somebody. So it, I think that the reason why they denied this is because it would implicate um, probably a lot of people who didn't want to get implicated and hung. Um, mm. That's my that's my uh, reasoning for that. Because we're talking about direct consequences for the people who, you know, anyone who was involved. And and, and, and I was trying to make the point before, you know how these investigations go. They, these can get pretty wild. I'm sure people can be blamed and flipped on who had nothing to do with anything of, of you know, the Archduke right. Ferdinand and the Black Hand. But, you know, maybe because they spoke with somebody at the wrong time and there was a photograph of it, then, you know, this guy is guilty as charged. So these invest- investigations can be quite humiliating, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they could have just Lee Harvey Oswald somebody, you know, like just pin it on some guy and then have yeah. it be over. Just get your, your Jack Rubenstein to come out and kill him and then no one asks ever a question ever again about what happened right yeah like oh it was this guy oh oh you know, sorry story died. about this guy <laughs> he fell out a window with a bullet in his head uh <laughs> sorry guys he died let's just stop yeah. talking about this he's dead no, what does it matter what what do you care about he already got someone killed him who cares yeah, he's dead already <laughs> he's dead he's dead already who cares shut up shut up shut up <laughs> you know they um i think um i've only passingly read this so Maybe I'm not writing the facts, but apparently the the Biden administration denied uh, declassifying certain uh, JFK, JFK related documents. documents. Yeah, that's true because we were coming up on that like 50 year um, term limit or whatever, like whatever the rule was that like in 50 years they'd have to release more information. <laughs> I, and you're right, I haven't thought about that in a while. And I guess, I, yeah. I think not, if you pull, we poll Americans, I think the majority of pe- Americans believe that, um, you know, the story about JFK is like, you know, CIA at the very <laughs> least, at the very least, it is not a, um, it's not the full story. 
I don't think uh, anyone yeah. believes it's the full story. Um, but I guess that's a spectrum of like, you know, do you think that it was the CIA or, or you know, do you think it was aliens? I guess there's kind of a weird spectrum because there's a lot of coo- there's a lot of <laughs> that is people. a pretty broad stroke of shit conspiracy with, theories that you get with that because you get there you get two types of conspiracies. You well, not two, but generally <laughs> speaking, you get there's conspiracy theorists who are actually like you know smart and educated and do hundreds and hundreds of hours of research. And, you know, they, they put some real legitimate theories. You're like, oh, man, that could be it. And then there's crazy people like Alex Jones types who, you know, who will just word vomit everything and, you know, not make much sense and make other conspiracy theorists look like idiots and crazy people. Um, mm-hmm. So that they filter. So a lot of the crazy JFK stuff kind of filters in with the. Uh, with, with the, the really um, crazy with conspiracy the, with, with like, theories. You know, with like the things that could be more legitimate. It's a lot like 9-11, how mm-hmm. you get like these nut jobs who think that a missile hit the, uh, hit the Pentagon and stuff. Mm-hmm. And they kind of mix in, in kind of uh, take away from the real scandal of, you know, working with these Al-Qaeda guys uh, you right. know, through, through years. So it's all right. We, we're going way too off point. We're getting away from World War One, So we got to go back. I'm going to talk about, so I have a quote. It's a good time for a quote. So historian Ruth Hennig, whether the Serbs were prepared to run the risk of Austrian attack because of assurances of help they had secured from the Russian government is not definitely established, nor is it clearly known whether or not they might have accepted all the demands had Russia had put strong pressure on them to do so. Certainly, the Serbs had gone most of the way, if not all, towards meeting the Austrian demands. When the Kaiser was later told in the details of the Serbian reply, he declared that the grounds for an Austro-Hungarian invasion had been removed, though he added that in his view, the Austro-Hungarians would still need to occupy Belgrade until such time as the Serbs were actually seen to be carrying out their promises. So, um... On July 25th, Austria is uh, starting to order their mobilization. Uh, you know, they, they will mobilize about seven uh, army corps against Serbia. They actually mobilize another corps uh, against Italy because they fucking knew Italy was going to backstab them. Mm-hmm. And everyone, everyone, it was like the open secret that Italy was going to, you know. The, the, the whole thing Those about sneaky Italy. Italians, they can't be trusted. <laughs> well, they had some real nut jobs and head of the Italian government at that time. Yeah. And yeah. Um, they knew for they knew how there was like so much hatred because there was disputed territory up in northern, you know, in the Alps. Um, right. And uh, there were some real, real whack jobs who were who were heading the Italian government in the basically through the first half of the 19th cent, uh, 20th century. But then I digress. Um, and that might be a future episode, but not part of the series. You see, um, it would take a few weeks weeks to get ready to invade. The Austrian government was, um, I mean, they were getting anxious to make a formal declaration. Um, there were efforts by the British to try to convince the Austrians to calm down. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, Edward Gray, the foreign secretary who, you know, at first he does turn into a real war war hawk later on, but at first he was, you know, advocating for some level of kind of diplomacy between uh, Austria, German, and Russia. Russia, 
the British uh, try to pressure some type of, you know, some type of, uh, you know, meeting of the of the great powers, you know, with France, Germany, Italy, uh, um, Russia, uh, you know, Vienna, Austria, uh, to you know have something to stop from this mobilization process. But this attempt in creating a peace a peace conference actually backfires. What it does is that it signals to the Austrians that. Um, you know, they had to actually settle this dispute faster than they thought they did, so they actually kind of hate they, they kind of hasten and uh, speed up the process. The German government then told the British that this could only be settled by direct negotiations between Austria and Russia, and the British were like, "Well, what the fuck? Like that's not going to do anything. Everyone knows that they're not going to go to war if you guys don't have their back." Mm-hmm. Like it's you're you're the, the the power here. You're you're the first rate power, not the Austrians. And um, you know that kind of puts Russia in a bad uh, puts Germany in a bad situation because um, it um, it's it puts them in. So it's basically like um, it's a Germany is basically Heisenberg watching Jesse's girlfriend die of an over overdose and doing nothing. If you get the bat breaking bad reference. Unfortunately I don't. I never actually watched Breaking Bad. <laughs> uh, all right. I should run by my someone, movie ref- someone, my TV show references before. Someone might though. <laughs> I'm sure somebody will get that reference and be like, oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. The point is there's a scene in Breaking Bad where uh, that someone didn't see it. I don't want to spoil it now. Now I'm conflicted. Just go ahead. At this point, it's been so many years since the show had ended that if All right. I had well, already said already this thing would happen. Yeah. The point I'm trying to make is that they could have stopped it, but they didn't. And um, the German chancellor, uh, Holdwig, he writes the Austrian government. Having already declined the English plan for a conference, it is impossible for us entirely to reject this, suggest- this suggestion as well. By refusing every mediatory action, we should make ourselves responsible before the whole world and should appear as the real authors of war. That would make our position impossible at home where we must appear to have war forced upon us. Our situation is all more difficult since Serbia has apparently given away a great deal. We cannot therefore decline the role of mediator and must forward the English proposal to the Vienna cabinet for consideration. Here's the problem. By the time this telegram reaches Vienna, the Austrian government already declared war. So it's July 28th. This is when the war actually, you know, the, the, the official start day of World War One. And by July 29th, so the next day, they start to bomb Belgrade. So they were able to send uh, uh, ships through the uh, Sava River. And they're able to shoot them with guns from the river. So they already start their, you know, at least bombing campaign. So in response to this, uh, the Russian, the Russians begin to, uh, you know, they begin their military mobilization. They mobilize four military districts, uh, Odessa, Kiev, Moscow, and Kazan, which were the, you know, they were the closest districts to, to Austria. And the thinking in Russian elite circles was, 
leaving Serbia out to dry would cause serious damage to Russian credibility, uh, you know, when judged by the international community, especially after Russia failed to stand up to, uh, you know, to the, to the German states, so Austria and Germany, uh, when they annexed Bosnia in 1909. You know, we, they came out of this huge scandal where the, you know, the Russian public found out that the, you know, the, 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 the government was making deals with the Austrians behind closed door that, you know, the, to annex, uh, you know, Bosnia that had a huge population of Serbs and it just caused a big disaster. So it's almost kind of a domestic, uh, political issue for them at this point where they can't, you know, be caught looking weak on the Serb issue because there's so many Serb supporters. So, um, Russia's main political goal at this time, too, was having better access to the the Turkish Straits. And, and you know, they eventually, you know, their dream was to become the predominant power in Constantinople. Um, you know, they wanted to, you know, be one of the main exploiters of the of the of the falling the the, the falling and declining Ottoman Empire. That's funny so, because uh, Russia's main political goal, I feel like, is still to have really good access to the Turkish Straits. So, <laughs> nothing I mean, changes. hey, you're, you can't move. I mean, your countries never change in terms yeah. of like where they're located. So those geo, those those uh, geography goals or geopolitical goals are always going to sort of remain the the same. Um, if you know what I'm saying. So, I mean, the the same the same geopolitical goal for Russia today was the same one as Stalin is to have a buffer state between the West or have buffers between the West. So a, um, you know, a German dominated Balkans would be a, you know, a threat to these, these, uh, objectives. The goal with mobilization from the Russia side what they were hoping was that this would was, this would ultimately deter Austria from invading and and you know maybe bring them to the negotiating table. But remember, this was just a partial mobilization at first. the The Russian general staff was upset about this. They said, "Hey, what are you doing? We uh, why are we only going through a partial mobilization when we should be doing a full mobilization?" Um, and this is going to be totally necessary if we're going to get into a war with Germany. And, um, you know, they were, they were ultimately concerned that if they had to, let's just say a war broke out and then they were transitioning from a, from a partial mobilization to a full mobilization, Germany would be able to respond to take advantage of it. And ultimately a partial mobilization would trigger a German mobilization in the first place. So, um, you know, they were like, we might as well just go play it big. Like, why are we doing half measures right here? Um, and the reason why um, they, well, one of the other reasons too, and, and I don't want to skip this, is that the French were in their ears as well. They're, the French government was was saying, uh, was telling the Russians like, hey man, you need to fully mobilize and get ready for war. Um, shit's about to go down. Like shit's about to go down. The French were thinking if the, and, and the French kind of knew this, the Germans would probably go after them first. 
So if the Germans went after France, they wanted, they were like, hey, Russia, the goal, you know, if they attack, you got to get ready because you need to attack East Prussia as soon as possible. You know, the fear that we, we sandwich them. So we got to take advantage of the sandwich, the sandwich move. German sandwich action. So the, the French government, um, you know, was, was, was aware, too, that it would take the Russians about, you know, three or four weeks to complete their mobilization. Therefore, they pressured the, the Russian government to, uh, to, you know, to authorize this general mobilization as quickly as possible. Now, um, remember, in between, in the background of all this going on, these monarchs are all related. They're all cousins. And they're all friendly cousins, too. You know, they're not like, oh, that's my, you know, they're, they spend time, spend time with each other. Um, the, you know, the British, the British, the Russian, and the German monarchs are all cousins with each other. So, Tsar Nicholas II, he sends a telegram to, to uh, Kaiser Wilhelm, pleading for his help in, in, in squashing this uh, potential war. And he writes, in this most serious moment, I, I appeal to, to you to help me. As ignoble war has been declared to a weak country, the indignation in Russia shared fully by me is enormous. I foresee that very soon I shall be overwhelmed by the pressure brought upon me and be forced to take extreme measures which will lead to war. To try and avoid such a calamity as a European war, I beg you in the name of our old friendship to do what you can to stop your allies from going too far. Signed, Nikki. Oh, Nikki. Trying and, to do the um, right thing. Yeah. Well, what's funny is that he disband he so he prevents the full mobilization. So he's about to t carry out the full mobilization which he knows that will absolutely trigger a war. And um, he stops because they receive a letter back, a friendly reply from his cousin, Willie. So Willie is, is Kaiser Wilhelm. And, you know, he writes, with regards to the hearty and tender friendship, which binds us both from long ago with firm ties, I'm exerting my utmost influence to arrive at a satisfactory understanding with you. I confidently hope you will help me in my efforts to smooth over difficulties that may still arise. Your very sincere and devoted friend and cousin, Willie. Oh, Willie. <laughs> but again, you know, the, the problem was a partial mobilization by Russia was enough to be a major threat interpreted by the German military authorities. And, um, you know, the thing was... Um, and the Germans knew this. Serbia was a much smaller country than 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 the you know the Austrian Austrian Hungarian Empire, but they certainly were not a pushover country. It wasn't like something that they would be able to yeah let's just send a couple of occupiers walk in there. The Serbians had a veteran army. They had a very good military academy. They had a professional you know they were they were professionals. They had out they outnumbered them and they had more industrial way more industrial capacity. But I mean, sir, they were going to fight some, you know, some pretty hardcore nationalist types, and you know, they were they were not going to go down. Um, the Serbs can fight. The Serbs were the number one resistors to the Nazi occupation. Um, you know, there it, it wasn't going to be a 
a cakewalk for them. And the Germans knew that the Austrians would have to commit a large number of troops for this for this invasion. So um, German military planning had assumed that in a situation of a general war between the central powers in France and Russia, the the Austrians would cover Germany's eastern flank by by launching an offensive against Russia, you know, in, in you know what is now Poland. And, um, and that would leave Germany able to just go ahead and concentrate on France in a big, great Western offensive. If Austrian troops were instead fully committed to the Balkans, the German eastern borders would be left vulnerable to a Russian attack, which would you know ultimately endanger the, the Schlieffen plan, which we're going to get into. So you get a situation where the German chancellor was actually trying to pull the brakes on, on Austrian preparations. The political leadership was trying to pull the brakes. But meanwhile, the German chief of staff in Moltke was urging the, the Austrians to announce um, a general mobilization against Russia and was also, um, you know, promising unqualified German support, you know, in this European war that was likely to break out. And, uh, you know, the Austrians really didn't really need that. They didn't, the Austrians did not need much convincing on this. So um, at this point, Russian military authorities were, were extremely worried that, you know, they were not going to be able to take on a German attack. The, the Austrians were mobilizing and, um, you know, the rumors were, were going around. The Germans were starting to as well. The Germans are going to be able to mobilize much faster. And, you know, the czar starts to buckle under pressure uh, from France in his own military. And on July 30th, he ordered the general mobilization. And at this point, a war was now inevitable. The, the German military machine was revving up for action. And, uh, you know, Germany demanded that Russia cease all military activities uh, that were aimed against Austria. And... Uh, you know, within within they they requested a, tw uh, a reply in twelve hours. Uh, the Russians did not reply, so they declared war on them on August first. So that's where the uh, the general continental war starts. It's it's kind of hard to believe that we've been doing this for like ten straight hours, and and just to get to this point, and I feel like. You know, we probably left so much out. <laughs> I mean, no, we didn't. We didn't probably lose so much off. We we left, you know, an, an unconceivable amount out of this. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, here's one thing that we still haven't talked in great detail about, and that's um, the the Schlieffen plan. Yeah, and, and let me just preface this. This is really important because we're talking about World War One. This is not a world war yet. This is how, to me, this is how the war turns into a global war. The, the Schlieffen plan, which was essentially the plan that was cooked up for decades past. Hey, 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 don't give it all away. This all right, is I'm not going to give it away. But, <laughs> um, you know, the Schlieffen plan is, is essentially the German plan to win the war quickly. So mm -hmm. um, perhaps you can jump into this part while I drink a cup of water. 
<laughs> Sounds good. Uh, so, you know, in the past five, four episodes plus one hour of this one, you know, we, we've obviously spent a whole lot of time discussing all of the events and the factors that led up to, you know, the start of World War One. And, you know, obviously, if you've been listening to all of them, I don't think it's a surprise to you that Germany had drafted up a plan to go to war on two fronts against France and Russia. And, you know, this plan was called the Schlieffen Plan, and it was thought up by some dude named Graf Alfred von Schlieffen, or Count Schlieffen, that's what Graf is. Um, and he was a German field marshal and strategist who, he served as the, uh, the chief of the Imperial German General Staff from 1891 to 1906. Now, these plans, when they were written, were strictly hypothetical, right? It's, it's not as if there was like this plan to just, just like, for no good reason, go ahead and start a war first. It was more of a like, like if, if shit hits the fan, or if it looks like it's about to hit the fan, here's the plan, right? It was that kind of plan. Now, this wasn't the first set of plans for an eventual war on two fronts. Prior to the Schlieffen plan, there were many other plans that were, you know, drafted and put into place, uh, you know, in the German high command. Uh, mostly those plans consisted of basically holding the line in the West against France and proactively attacking Russia in the East. And honestly, there was a lot of really good logic for this type of approach for Germany. Because remember, when, when you know, we, we've discussed this earlier in this podcast and probably several other times throughout the last five episodes, but Germany's kind of in a weird spot, right? And it's, it's surrounded by a bunch of other superpowers. So, you know, the, the question always becomes, if shit hits the fan, especially given all of these alliance systems, like we have to pick a target to attack. You, can, you can't spread yourself too thin. So you have to like focus somewhere. So those uh, approaches, the, the early ones before the Schlieffen plan, you know, they thought, all right, if we're going to pick one, we're going to pick, we're going to go after Russia because they look like a better target. And, and there's some, a lot of good logic, like I said, uh, around this. Firstly, the, the, the historic route to go invade France from Germany is this relatively flat area uh, between the Jura and Vosges mountain, mountain ranges. Uh, it's called the Belfort Gap or the Burgundian Gate. I'll, I'll refer to it as the Belfort Gap because I like that one better. Um, and this was the route that, uh, that the German armies took during the Franco-Prussian War in 1870. And it's also just this historic passageway uh, that many, you know, many, many legions of troops have traveled through uh, to get to the, the you know, the France and, and further on to the Iberian Peninsula from the central uh, parts of Europe. But uh, because of that war, though, the, the Franco-Prussian War in 1870. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart 
and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. France was like, all right, well, we got to do something about this this Belfort gap. And they set out to heavily fortify the Belfort Gap by building several forts around four what they called frontline cities. Uh, and those four cities were Belfort, uh, Epinal, Toul, and Verdun. And they basically built up these network of fortifications and it made you know any attempt to just walk straight through the Belfort Gap a near impossibility for Germany or literally for anyone else. So the idea you know, the early plans that Germany had before the Schlieffen plan, the idea was just dig in on Germany's border with France and just hold them from advancing. That was like the main goal. Like we're not going to be able to walk through the Belfort gap. So we're just going to sit in place, make sure they don't make any territorial gains and we'll focus on the East with Russia. Now, a second important point and and good piece of logic for these pre Schlieffen plans was that uh, Germany and its ally Austria both shared borders with Russia. And this is kind of a geographic upside that wasn't present on the border with France, right? The idea is they can tag team Russia on the eastern border and knock them out of the war quickly together, right? Like Austria doesn't border France, so they can't help them with France, really. You know, they'd have to go through the freaking Alps and, you know, through Italy in order to swing around to get to them or through Switzerland, you know, this is, there's no border there that they can help them with. So, um, you know, that's the idea. They're going to tag team them. And some supporting logic to this play was also that the fact that the German and Austro-Hungarian armies were largely just better trained, better equipped, and much, much more mobile than the Russian forces were at the time. So they were like, oh, look, these, these guys are pretty weak, Right. We can tag team them. So that's that's the obvious target, right? They're the mark. But at the end of 1905, Schlieffen starts writing up some new plans, some updated plans, right? Because you know, things are starting to boil up. We've been talking about all of the, the you know, uh, context and all the events that had hap- been happening around this time. So it was clear that they needed to do some sprucing up to their plans. And initially, Schlieffen's plans were pretty much the same as the ones that I just described before, like hold in the West, attack in the East. But a new assumption about Russia's army brought like a huge change to the plan. Uh, Schlieffen argued that Russia would need at least six weeks to do a full mobilization of their forces for an assault on Germany. So six weeks. And that, in his opinion, would give Germany enough time to defeat France. So he spins the idea around and he says, okay, these Russians, you know, they got a big country. Yeah, they got a lot of people, but like by the time they get all the people from their far east all the way over here, 
for full mobilization. It's going to be at least six weeks, and that that should be enough time to to beat to beat France. And so he even argued, and this is kind of crazy. He said, "All right, even if they are, yeah, maybe they do it a little quicker, or maybe it takes us a little longer to beat up France, and and maybe Russia does make a couple of gains into you know Eastern Germany." He thinks, okay, well, th- those will be short-lived. We'll just come back after we're done with France and we'll take back that territory and then turn around and do a full hit, full court press on Russia. He, you know, a lot of this plan really just hinged on the German army's mobility. And it's kind of smart because at least within Germany itself, there were extensive railways uh, and, and paved roads. So, you know, those, you know, those things allow... Uh, the Germans to move their forces around within Germany really quickly. Uh, so the plan kind of did have some legs. It, but one of the reasons why Germany was so nervous about Russia was the fact that the Russians were building uh, railroads. Right. So they and were going to be improving mm-hmm. those logistics. And the big, fun, the big, uh, the capital was coming from France. So mm-hmm. they were like, oh man, like look what they're doing. France is, is providing the capital finance for Russian industry on our border. Mm-hmm. Like this is, this is, this is extremely threatening to us. Um, the, the thing about Schlieffen, which is, which is uh, interesting is that just on a personal level, he, he's just the very stereotypical Prussian, like military mind. Like mm-hmm. you just, if you just type in a picture of him, you're just like, Oh man, that guy looks like a Prussian general. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> Allegedly, his his famous the fam- his very famous last words. He dies, like on his deathbed, uh, talking about the Schlieffen plan. <laughs> he's on his deathbed, and he's like, "Remember uh, the, the right flank, or something like that." He says something along the lines of something on the right or cover the right flank. But he mm-hmm. dies like talking about the Schlieffen plan. Like those his last words. His whole his his whole life was uh surrounded by by this plan i mean by, he, he, he really plan. he he was really serious about it he thought he made the best plan ever you know schlieffen he budgeted just this is just a, like the delusion of him right so if you if, the the context that henry just gave you about him dying and and his last dying words were about this plan really just kind of tells you how like obsessed with this plan he was he was so crazy about it that he he budgeted just 45 days to defeat all of France in this plan and then turn around and bring the entire weight of the entire German army from France through Germany to Russia to go beat them up. Which, I mean, it's cute that he made a really strong goal, right? You know, he's aiming high. Um, now, I know what you're thinking. Didn't I just say that invading France from the east through the Belfort Gap wouldn't be a walk in the park. And and that part was still true. And Schlieffen knew about this. Like, it's not like new information. He knew that you can't just walk through the Belfort Gap. But he had this crazy-ass idea to literally get around that. And that idea involved going through Belgium. So there was another really good route uh, in the Meuse Valley in Belgium, which would provide a pretty straight shot into northern France. And so Schlieffen planned to just basically wrap around and encircle Paris through the north, the northeast of France and basically pin them down on the other side with the forces that advance a little bit more slowly 
through the Belfort Gap. Um, and for the most part, it sounded like a pretty solid plan, but they also made, you know, again, he's making some pretty big assumptions here, pretty bad ones, really. And his assumptions were primarily around Belgium. See, Schlieffen, he assumed that Belgium would be pretty easy to roll over on their way to France. I mean, Belgium legitimately is a tiny little country after all, you know, like how could they possibly hold off the mighty German empire, right? I mean, it's, it's a pretty good calculation. If you if I was a betting man, I'd probably agree with him on that front, but it, it was a bad idea and I'll get, I'll get to, I'll get to that in a moment. Um, so another factor that Schlieffen really didn't for, foresee is how, how would invading Belgium change the political landscape in Europe, particularly against them? And, and we'll get to that in a bit too. So small as Belgium was and is, they still had their own fortifications to deal with too. Nothing like the Belfort Gap, but they did have 12 forts that were defending the city of Liege, which is right in the way of their route to go to France, right? And that's not a small amount of forts, right? That's that's kind of like a, an obstacle. It's a bit of speed bump. And then again, Schlieffen with his crazy ass plans, he had, an, he had a plan to get around that too. And that plan was to actually go into, go even further north and invade a small part of the Netherlands to get around that fort, right? So it, like all, all of Schlieffen's plans were like, put an obstacle in front of him. He's like, ah, oh, it's cool. I'll just go around it, right? Put another obstacle around him. Ah, oh, it's cool. I'll just go around that one too. Um, it's, I mean, it's simple. It's kind of genius. It's also fucking stupid, right? Like it's all of those things all at once. Um, and And the thing about that though, about invading the Netherlands, right? is that, uh, you know, you'd, you'd be fighting two countries at once at this point, right? Now you're fighting Belgium and the Netherlands at the same time. And if, if that, that might not be a, a, a problem if that's all your goal was, right? Just fighting Belgium and the Netherlands. But that wasn't the goal. The goal was to get through them to get to France. And speed is, is the priority. So eventually they end up dropping the Netherlands plan, um, that, you know, that, and that helped keep the Netherlands, you know, neutral for the most part in the war. Um, but somehow Schlieffen convinced everybody that these forts in, in Liege in Belgium weren't going to be a problem and that they could still get it done in time and that the German army could handle them and still somehow get to France and take Paris in 45 days. I mean, totally a stretch, but I mean, the German high command bought it and that was the plan that they, that they went with when, when shit hit the fan. So what actually went down was, uh, you know, in response to the German declaration of war against Russia on August 1st, the French, they obviously order a full mobilization of their own. And then the Germans mobilized shortly after that and they sent a message to paris and said yo remain neutral or else and of course you know that got ignored two days later on august 3rd germany declares war on france right and at the same time germany hits up king albert of belgium who at the time is still neutral 
And he basically demands that they just open up their doors and let the Germans walk through Belgium or else, right? So they're making a lot of threats here. And then, you know, King Albert, he doesn't, he's, he doesn't take their shit and he immediately orders a full mobilization. So now Belgium is no longer neutral and they have a full mobilization. Less than a day later, Germany obviously invades Belgium according to, the, according to that Schlieffen plan. And, and here's where the Germans fucked up. It's literally right here. So Britain, and I know I haven't been talking about Britain in a while, but now, they, now they're relevant. Britain had already asked Germany to leave Belgium out of their shit. But Germany obviously didn't make that promise because it was already in their plan to go through Belgium in the first place, right? To get to France. So by invading Belgium, Germany makes it inevitable that Great Britain would jump in the war. Now, the Anglo-French Accords of 1905, that didn't specifically obligate Britain to help France in any way if they were you know, uh, invaded. But, you know, as with a lot of these, uh, agreements, there's a lot of these like handshake deals that happen under the table. And, and the British government had given private assurances to the French government that, that they'd help them out if something went down. But, you know, a lot of historians argue that the type of help that they would have gotten if they were just straight up invaded through the Belfort gap would have probably been limited to just stopping the German fleet and like blockading them and stuff like that. Like not necessarily committing boots on the ground. But Britain's eight earlier treaty, their, their 1839 treaty, made commitments to uphold Belgian neutrality. That was very specific. Like their goal was to make sure Belgian stayed neutral. And since Belgium is now under attack they could therefore not be neutral anymore, right? They're no longer neutral. So it gives Britain all of the reasons it needed to go ahead and put you know, boots on the ground in mainland Europe, right? They were freed of their obligation to try and keep Belgium uh, neutral. Yeah, Germany took that off the table for them. So remember the part I said a little while ago about German army being super mobile? Well, that's still a thing, and I want to talk about that a little bit, about mobilization in general. So all of the German rally points and arms depots were local, right? So think of it like, you know, and it, it wasn't exactly like this, but one, one easy way to think of it was like every city, every town had a local arms depot and a local rally point where all of the all the men that would be called up for you know, military for the military would go to this one town center and then they can go off to war. And that's important, right? Because once mobilization orders were given, a military unit could be assembled. You know, they can give them all their guns and sent them off on their way within 24 hours. Now you add that to the fact that Germany has an extensive and efficient rail network. This means that the German military unit that got you know, called up could be on the front within 48 hours, right? So that's, that's fast, even for today's standard, like two days and they can be on the front. That's quick. France, on the other hand, their mobilization was much slower because the way that they set up their rally points for their French recruits were typically farther away, right? They weren't like in every single town. It'd be like one in the middle of fucking nowhere. And if you got called up, 
you'd have to take a train or, you know, a long journey to that rally point, get armed up, and then you have to take another train from there to go to the front. And, you know, at best, that difference would be two to three days slower than Germany would. So Germany does it in two days. France is doing it in like four or five days, right? And that really makes a big difference, you know, especially in, in a war where Germans' literal plan is just hit hard and hit fast, right? So to top all this off, France's mobilization was already three to seven days behind Germany's at the start of the war, right? They hadn't started mobilizing for at least three to seven days beforehand. And, and this kind of made them shit their pants a little, right? Because they're like, oh, crap. You know, they're already, like, once they started fighting with, um, with Belgium, they were like, oh, shit, we know what they're about to do. They're about to go hook around the north and, and come at us that way. They're not coming through the, the trap that we laid for them in the Belfort Gap. And we're having trouble. We're already behind and we're having trouble getting people, you know, to support the front. Um, so Germany at this point is off to a really good start. But again, Belgium. I want to underscore that Belgium, no, nobody ever would argue that Belgium could possibly win against the Germans. But I got to give it to them. Those guys held up and held the Germans up for a very, very long time. So long, in fact, that it actually gave the British enough time to get from, from England, cross the channel, through France, and up into Belgium to support the Belgians. So it gave them that. That's how much time they bought. Uh, props to Belgium, but the Germans really fucked them up, though. Uh, and they committed a shit ton of uh, alleged war crimes along the way. Uh, some of them true. Some of them trumped up a bunch. Uh, and yeah, this, that's when the British the British uh, propaganda machine came out and exactly you know they labeled it. So I just typed in um, something weird. So I typed in uh, "rape of Belgium" because I just wanted to see what the casualty, what, what the Wikipedia says uh, right. deaths. So mm-hmm. Wikipedia says twenty three thousand civilians died, or twenty three yeah twenty three thousand civilians died. Mm-hmm. The weirdest thing about this Wikipedia page, "rape of Belgium." Right underneath it says, not to be confused with rape in Belgium. That's funny. It's weird. Um, but yeah, you know, the, the, so I guess a good way to explain the fervor in Britain, because I think this is an important part of the story, is that it was the rallying call. Like, we need to support Belgium. It's a lot like how Ukraine is today, right. especially in Britain, where, you know, I think support for Ukraine is even higher than it is in the United States. But um, it's like, you know, that that was like, you know, if if there were, you know, T-shirts with Belgian flags, I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah. sure it would be, you know, all over social media. Uh, it's like imagine if Twitter was back then. Um, I mean, we're talking about obviously it's wrong to invade a country, but we're talking about Belgium. Belgium is a brutal, a brutal imperial imperial country like at the time, you know, mm-hmm. Winston Churchill was talking about, you know, according to Winston Churchill, Winston Churchill was disgusted by Bel- by Belgium and their treatment of uh, the people in Congo. You know, like, like the story of King Leopold, uh, mm-hmm. what King Leopold the Fourth. Um, maybe I'm getting his wrong. King Leopold of Belgium, you know, the rape of Belgium and like the horrible atrocities and treatment of the, of the local indigenous populations there. Mm-hmm. Um, we're like over another level than how other, you know, colonial 
countries, you know, handle that type of stuff. Um, but it was the one of the main center points. And I think, you know, you had mentioned that there were secret handshake deals. And, 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 and of course, there were definitely secret handshake assurances. And the French absolutely expected the, the, the British to jump into the war if the war was to outbreak. Um, it's interesting, though, because, you know, again, I mentioned earlier, there was a war party in every single country. And, and um, you know, um, the, you know the Lloyd George, uh, the prime minister, was against the war at first. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to keep British Britain in neutral. There's a really good book about this, um, Pat Buchanan's book, where he where he writes about pretty much the fall of the British Empire, like the last remaining decades and the, the policy mistakes that they made. Basically, his thesis is that you know he mainly the first chapter is about World War One. The rest of the book is all about World War Two and a bunch of the mistakes the British made. But you know he, you know he writes that he writes a lot about how the the, the Liberal Party, the the party that Lloyd George was part of, was just totally swept into the war fervor. Um, you know, mainly kind of pushed in, by the big war hawks were Churchill, of course, and um, and um, uh, the Foreign Secretary Gray. But um, it's it's. Um, it's just interesting that every single and, it, and it's something that warrants more exploration. You know, how do the, how does everyone have these different because I don't think we've even really touched on this. Like, how does these war parties just develop in these nations mm-hmm. where, you know, there's just people primed and ready to go? Is it just intense nationalism? Is it is it is it, in, you know, uh, business interest? Because you know, there's obviously business interest in in Belgium neutrality, right? For the British, that's their closest relay point from the in the British over the the British Channel to the European mm-hmm. continent. So of course they want them neutral. But it's just an interesting question that deserves uh, you know further exploration. For sure, probably wouldn't be able to you know do enough on this episode on. For sure. But I guess kind of coming back to it, you know, in terms of the the invasion of Belgium, you know, and, and the things that the German army did in Belgium, you know, for better or for worse, this this gave the Allies a lot of propaganda ammo, and and this propaganda ammo was definitely very useful to helping sway other countries to join their side. Primary among them, the United States. Right, which you know was largely isolationist and wanted nothing to do with <laughs> this European war, uh, probably for good reason. But you know that that's probably a story for another time. My point is that the Germans severely underestimated the time that it would take to get through Belgium, and more to the point, they make a critical political miscalculation that the Brits wouldn't come to help. Belgium or France. So, you know, Schlieffen plan could have worked if Belgium had rolled over and if the Brits hadn't gotten in. But that's like too many assumptions that I think they made. And that's, it's it's fascinating that, that the German high command just ate this shit up and we're like, yeah, Schlieffen, great plan. Let's do, let's do that, you know? Um, so meanwhile, on the Eastern front, 
to talk about their mobilization a little bit. Uh, Russian mobilization was just as bad as France, maybe even arguably worse. You know, their Western Front was organized into six military districts, and each of those districts had multiple muster stations, but they were f- super far from the fronts. In some cases, in some of these uh, uh, military districts, the, the muster station was as much as 200 miles away from the front. And, you know, three of these military districts were on the German front and three of them were on the Austrian front. So it's like splitting them between these two powers. So again, um, going back to the original German plans of, of tag-teaming Austria, so they have to split their focus between two different countries. Um, also, very importantly, less than 1% of their roads at the time were paved. And people had to walk for miles to get to their muster point. So that really slowed things down for them. But despite being so slow, you know, by design, the Eastern fronts of, you know, the German and Russian border were way understaffed by the German military, meaning they didn't commit a whole lot of forces to holding on to that. Remember in the Schlieffen plan was like, hey, if they, you know, if they end up coming in early and they take some territory, it's like all good, we'll take it back. Right. Like that was the plan. And all the time that they spent in Belgium just gave Russia way more time to mobilize so much so that eventually Germany would have to start bleeding forces from the Western front to shore up the Eastern front. So that was the Schlieffen plan. And, you know, I was considering keeping this going and, you know, talking about how it panned out, but I feel like that's, that's the war. And I want to leave that for, you know, <laughs> another 10 hours of content that we'll probably yeah. have to do. <laughs> yeah. So the, the purpose of this series was not to do like a World War One podcast on the war and the battles. It was more so to just provide more context on, you know, how the war happened. And it was complicated to do this because... You know, we're dealing with a bunch of different countries. That's probably the hardest part. But the, the, the things that made this challenging were two things. Well, there's many things, but here are the things I found most challenging. The fact that we're dealing with, um, you know, uh, primarily five different countries in Germany, Austria, Hungary, Russia, France, and Britain. Um, those are the countries. In Serbia, what am I talking about? Six countries. I think we dedicated the most time to Serbia and, and Austria. Um, that, and there's just so much information out there. So it's like you can get really bogged down and lost. So, um, you know, hopefully everyone found this interesting and, and easy to consume. Um, I'm certain that people are listening and are like, oh man, you missed, you didn't talk about this or that or that. I'm like, yeah, you're probably right. We didn't talk about that. And the reason why is because, you know, we, we, we could do, we, you try doing this, a podcast on this. World yeah. War you do a podcast on world war one. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me what you come up with. Um, but so far the feedback has been awesome. Um, a lot of people have been telling us that this is some of the, the best shows that we put out. So I'm happy to hear it. And let us know what you guys are interested in. Um, if you want more series, if you, if you like this type of method, I feel like this is one of the better series that we've done. For sure. 
Um, we've come a long way from doing our Japan series to now in our in our Korean series that we didn't ever finished. <laughs> and even before that, I mean, our our series front started with like those ancient history series, right? So that was around uh, this time last year, I think. That was like two years ago. Yeah. Well, we were doing the Korean War series, and then the the war in Ukraine happened, which just totally broke my concentration on doing anything Korean War related. So, yep. maybe I lost we have to it. get back into that. Who knows? Yeah, I don't know where to go from here. But all right, guys. So this is the last episode of the year. We are working on uh, new content and and also just like holiday Christmas stuff and spending time with family. So uh, I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Uh, make sure that you rate and review the podcast. That is the number one way to support our show. And uh, I hope you guys have a happy, wonderful new year. And, uh, you know, happy holidays, Christmas, Hanukkah, uh, Kwanzaa, whatever other holidays are in this time period. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, spend time with family. When holidays come, try not to think too much about politics. I think that's a healthy thing. Always take a mental break from from political rhetoric and and i think too much politics is uh can really hurt your brain after a while i think i went through that period during uh, uh about two holidays ago after uh you know during like the election and i was just like fuck i need to get out of it i need to talk about like space pirate wizards or something um, but yeah, Merry Christmas uh, to all. Happy holidays to all. Uh, and uh, Happy New Year. Uh, enjoy time with your loved ones. And we will be back in 2023. All right. Peace. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.